Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you will be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to assist us in both receiving and understanding your Holy Word. Direct our steps and further us with your help that all our works may begin and end in you. You, O God, are the fountain of all wisdom who knows what we need before we ask. Have compassion on our weakness and grant to us all things necessary for godliness. We pray your blessings on the word preached and on the worship offered to your name. As it was for King David, may your law be sweet to us. May we feast on your words for they are life. Help us especially to learn what it means to rest and delight in the Sabbath, to sanctify this Lord's day, to be, for it to be full of its joy, to know true fellowship with you and the saints. Oh, that the outward words we hear with our ears this day may, through your grace, be grafted to our hearts, that it may bring forth in us the fruit of good living, to the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear now the word of the living God from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Before I began the sermon today, um, as I looked out this morning and see uh, all of you, I am thankful Thankful for every individual, for every family, uh, for the friendships, for the love, for the steadfastness and faithfulness, for the service, for the prayers, for the growth that I see in you, in Christ, for all of that. And as we've, in many cases, known each other for a long time, and we have some newer faces as well, It's easy in relationships, just like it is in everything else, to grow weary in well-doing. And uh, I'm thankful that you haven't, uh, that you continue. And I'm genuinely grateful, and I know you are as well, to have this family. Uh, You know, sometimes there's sand in the gears. Sometimes we, just like at our households, uh, we might get on somebody's nerves or irritate this person or that person or not do things just the way each of us wants. But I am genuinely thankful for every one of you and give thanks to God and uh, praise Him and uh, know that you know in His providence He's put us together to sometimes be that sand in the gears. Iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another. And so to see God's work in flesh and blood and in, in an incarnational way, the body of Christ maturing and growing, it is a great encouragement. Last Lord's Day, I introduced the subject of words. And, and so just by way of review, we pointed out that God's words and God's actions are always consistent. 
He always does what he says, and there's never a contradiction. He doesn't say one thing and do another because his words are, in fact, a manifestation of, a transcript of his character, of who he is. When someone's words and actions aren't consistent with each other, we see them as hypocrites or as liars because uh, words are a form of behavior. We We shouldn't say something like, oh, well, those were just words. They're never just words. Words do things. Words are powerful. And so when we speak, we're always doing something. We're either doing something good or something bad. When someone's words and actions then uh, aren't consistent, then we have a problem, and that is our problem. We consider the power of words to bless or curse, to create or destroy. As God's words go forth, they change the world. Creating or generating new things, sustaining old things, even resurrecting or regenerating the dead. As creatures who are made in the image of God and having been given the unique ability of language, our words are also powerful. They too are forms of behavior that reveal our character, and so our words can edify or build up. Our words can wound or tear down. Our words can be violent, and or they can be soothing words that bring comfort. We saw that words are unveiling or that they expose or reveal and they speak when we speak we reveal who we are they reveal our hearts jesus or proverbs says in chapter 23 verse 7 as a man thinks in his heart so is he jesus said in luke 6 a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so we began last week looking at little words, idle words, those kind of casual words that we speak. And we remember that Jesus gave us a rather alarming statement about those words. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That speaks again to the power of our words. James understood all this too well, writing in his epistle, All of us stumble in many ways, but if anyone is never at fault in what he says, then he is fully mature and able to bridle his whole body also. So we're going to begin today, or continue today, and for the next couple of weeks to look at what the Bible has to say about words. This is a little bit different kind of sermon, in many ways more of a Bible study, but I think of sermons not only as something to inform us and to teach us about what God's Word says, but it's it's about changing us. It's not just about information. And so as we hear these words, we need to be taking them to heart and asking the Lord and praying that the Holy Spirit would take these words and say, Lord, show me if there's any hurtful way in me in regard to these things. And so that should be your focus, our focus today as we hear these things. And so I want to begin by talking about prideful words. 
Admittedly, this is something of a catch-all category. There is a sense in which all sin is found in the sin of pride. The head and origin of all sin is a basic pride, uh, and therefore there's a great deal to say about that subject. Yet all, all there is to be said about it can be said in a single sentence. It is the sin of trying to be as God. It was the first sin, and in, in essence, it's been every sin ever since. It's us saying, God's not going to tell me what to say or do or think or how to feel. I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to be God. I'll determine good and evil. It's the sin that proclaims that man can produce out of his own wits, out of his own impulses, and his own imagination the standards by which he will live. That man, that man is fitted to be his own judge. Dorothy Sayers said, For the devilish strategy of pride is that it attacks us not on our weak points, but on our strong points. Chrysostom referred to the sum of Christianity as the foundation of our philosophy, uh, the foundation of our philosophy as the subject of humility. And Calvin refers to the answer to, to the answer Demosthenes uh, gave to the question, "What was the chief rule in eloquence?" And he said, "The famous so the famous rhetorician said delivery." And the second rule is delivery, and the third rule is delivery. Calvin picked up on this and commented on the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, and third, and always, he said, I would answer, humility. So set over against pride is humility. Pride is involved in the whole package of transgressions then. Pride-filled speech will manifest itself in a number of ways. We'll see how the tongue reveals us as pride-filled speech of the tongue performs an expose of our lives. As Proverbs 6.2 says, you are snared by the words of your mouth, you are taken by the words of your mouth. By referring to pride-filled, that is prideful speech, it's easy to oversimplify the whole matter by thinking of it as, uh, thinking of it only in terms of Selfish speech, that is, speaking only and always about yourself. That is one form of it, but there are other forms of it. Your mouth will reveal what's in there. If you're filled with yourself, then it will come out of your mouth. For example, here's a few from Proverbs, Proverbs 14.3, In the mouth of a fool is the rod of pride. Proverbs 18.2, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Proverbs 27.2, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And Proverbs 30.32, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. Prideful words reveal something about how you see yourself and how you see others. This was seen and heard in Luke 18 as the Pharisees stood to pray and thank God that he wasn't like the others. Remember, all our words reveal something about who and what we are. And so as we're criticizing others and complaining about others, and we can't believe what so-and-so did or said, 
Those are often words expressing our own pride, our own sense that we are a bit better than all those sinners. Remember, all of our words reveal something about who and what we are, and so if you are foul, then that will be seen through foul speech. We'll say more about that in a moment. If you're perverse, then you will be known as a person of perverse speech. What's in there, what's in here, will come out of your mouth. That's why Paul spoke of some for whom all things were nasty and defiled and corrupt. Why is this? It's because such things were for them the interpretive grid through which they heard and saw and smelt and felt and tasted everything. He described them as, in Titus 1.15 as those who are defiled and unbelieving. Nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now, it's possible to have pride-filled reactions to pride-filled speech. This is equivalent to, equivalent to allowing their sin to lead you into your own sin. You may become aware of the sins of another person again, uh, yourself, and, and you're aghast, astounded, and just, just, I'm just beside myself. Well, sometimes we can find ourselves so wound up about the sins of other people, I just can't believe she said that, or did that, or wants that, or would think that. And we end up gossiping and despising and demeaning and disparaging so that we reveal our own prideful arrogance. The, pride, the prideful will gasp when the sins of others are confessed or when they come to light. Just as it's possible, though, to have pride-filled reactions to pride-filled speech, it's also possible to have pride-filled reactions to speech that is not pride-filled. It's possible to have this kind of foolish, pride-filled speech reaction to righteous speech. This includes the response of the fool when he's corrected. Fools are usually known by their behavior or sometimes by their clothing or other outward manifestations. Sometimes by their Facebook pages, sometimes by their music. All kinds of ways fools let themselves be known. But fools will show themselves fools, and this usually occurs when the lights are the brightest. Someone may use their tongue wisely in righteousness and correct another, and they may offer biblical counsel, admonition, reproof, encouragement. But it's at this point of response that the fool's pride is seen. The one person has behaved in a righteous way, the other shows himself to be a fool. And so the Bible refers to such persons as scoffers. Proverbs 14:9 Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there's favor. Proverbs 15:12 A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he nor will he go to the wise. And Proverbs 21:24 A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. He can't be told anything. He can never be corrected. So that's kind of the big picture, prideful speech, and then it begins to show up in other kinds of speech, other kinds of words. And so next thing we will begin to see are contentious words. So this is a facet of this pride-filled speech, contentious speech, argumentative speech of strife, there are some who always seem to be looking for some kind of a 
squabble or fight or conflict. Proverbs 23, it is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. This is something forbidden to, for example, church officers, elders, overseers are not supposed to be quarrelsome. Deacons are supposed to be reverent. And this is something that is placed in opposition in the qualifications that are listed to being double-tongued, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. There is a place, of course, for godly contention. It is part of the duties of elders. They are to teach with sound doctrine and and refute those who contradict. It is interesting to note that Paul instructs Titus regarding the churches that he was to establish, that he was uh, to avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Apparently there were some in their ranks who were especially given to this kind of wrangling, and Paul says that's not to go unchecked. He went on to instruct them to reject a divisive or a factious man after the first and second admonition uh, or warning, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, scriptures don't just address men in particular here, but also women. It refers, the Bible is rather specific and repetitive with regard to contentious argumentative wives as well. Now, this is a reality, or else the Bible wouldn't have addressed it this way. The Bible tends to address young men, young women, wives, husbands, with their particular tendencies. That doesn't mean every individual, but the Bible doesn't hold back addressing classes of people and certain tendencies. We read in Proverbs 19.13, The contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. And again in Proverbs 27, 15, and 16, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasp oil with his right hand. Proverbs 21, 9, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. These are the ones that have often forgotten that they are given to be helpers to their husbands, not harassers. They're together to be formed into the image of Christ. Let me pause here because like everything else in the Bible, we have the warning on one side. But, you know, maybe some guys are sitting there. Aha, I've got something to whack her with now. Okay. God also gave her to help you, which means sometimes she is there to correct you and to point out sin, and to do it in a loving and gracious way, sometimes a rather firm and gracious way. And so wisdom knows the difference in these two. Proverbs 21:19 again, uh, emphasize, well, remember husband and wife together are to form the image of Christ. And so Proverbs 21:19 again, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. A few other Proverbs address the problem of contentious words. 16.28, a perverse man sows strife. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for blows. And 22.10, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. 
Are you in a lot of conflicts with people? A lot? You find yourself always agitated with this person or that person? Well, perhaps you need to look at how you're talking. Does your speech, is your speech seasoned with salt and grace so that it leads to a resolution to problems? Or is your speech more like throwing gas on a fire? Is your first response to a conflict to bow up, to say something, to give somebody a piece of your mind? Or is your first response to say, how can I calm this down? How can I turn the temperature down? How can we resolve this as brothers and sisters in Christ with my wife or husband or children or next-door neighbor or church member? This falls under the broader heading of pride-filled words since the one who can't break off a quarrel is one who is generally filled with the opinion that his opinion or their opinion must prevail. We often contribute to strife and conflict when we have difficulty seeing anybody else's point of view. We need to be careful on being wise in our own opinions, as Paul warns in Romans 12. When we are, we're sure to create conflict. Now, our text today talked about corrupt words. But no corrupt, nasty, foul, ugly, nasty word come out of your mouth. None of them. Zero. But only what is good. While God created us to use our mouths to praise Him, man in his rebellion finds pleasure in using his mouth to do the very opposite. Our culture is filled with words that are dirty and nasty and foul and lewd and vulgar and profane and obscene and blasphemous. Sin has corrupted our words because sin has corrupted what? Our hearts. It's now cool to be crude. It's a public demonstration that God is not going to tell me what to do or what to say. It is a defiance against His authority. Men love to take legitimate words out of their context. Words like hell and damnation and God and Jesus Christ and use them in casual ways. In their original context, these words are words that unnerve the unbeliever. And so by placing them in a lighter context, he hopes to get comfortable with them. Other words corrupt and mock what God calls holy and good. Things like sex and family and authority, while some words are simply base and nasty. Such expletives have become so common that we've grown accustomed to them, but God is still offended. He has not grown accustomed to them. Little men with little vocabularies constantly reveal their smallness. Even some professing Christians profane their baptisms with careless and corrupt words. We substitute words like heck and shoot or gosh or friggin' or as some kind of Christian substitute for foul and blasphemous language. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, 
but rather giving of thanks. I'm going to read a couple of quotes here from George Whitfield, a famous preacher in New England. They're powerful about this subject of nasty, foul cursing. The damned devils and damned souls of men in hell may be supposed to rave and blaspheme in their torments because they know that the chains wherein they are held can never be knocked off. But for men that swim in the river of God's goodness, whose mercies are renewed to them every morning, and who are visited with fresh tokens of His infinite, unmerited loving kindness every moment, for these favorite creatures to set their mouths against heaven and to blaspheme a gracious, patient, all-bountiful God is a height of sin which exceeds the blackness and impiety of devils and hell itself. He continues, <clears throat> If these things be so, and the sin of profane swearing as has been in some measure shown, is, to, is so exceedingly sinful. What shall we say to such unhappy men who think it not only allowable, but fashionable and polite to take the name of God in vain, who imagine that swearing makes them look big among their companions and really think it a piece of honor to abound in it? But alas, little do they think that such a behavior argues the greatness, greatest degeneracy of mind and foolhardiness that can possibly be thought of. For what can be more base than one hour to pretend to adore God in public worship and the very next moment to blaspheme His name, indeed such a behavior from persons who deny the being of God, if any such fools there be, is not altogether too much to be wondered at, but for men who not only subscribe to a belief in a deity, but likewise acknowledge him to be a God of infinite majesty and power, for such men to blaspheme his holy name by profane cursing and swearing, and at the same time confess that this very God has expressly declared he will not hold him guiltless, but will certainly and eternally punish without repentance, him that taketh his name in vain, is such an instance of foolhardiness as well as baseness that can scarcely be paralleled. This is what they presume not to do in other cases of lesser danger. They dare not revile a general at the head of his army, nor rouse a sleeping lion when within reach of his paw. And is the Almighty God, the great Jehovah, the everlasting King who can consume them by the breath of his nostrils and frown them to hell in an instant? Is he the only contemptible being in their account that may be provoked without fear and offended without punishment? No. Though God here long, he will not bear always. The time will come, and that too perhaps much sooner than such persons may expect, when God will vindicate his injured honor when he will lay bare his almighty arm and make those wretches feel the eternal smart of his justice and show his power and name 
that they have so often vilified and blasphemed. Alas, what will become of their bravery then? Will they then wantonly sport with the name of their Maker and call upon the King of all the earth to damn them any more in jest? Since the Bible teaches us that corrupt words are extremely offensive to God, and since they are so commonly used around us, then I would suggest it is our Christian duty to show our disapproval and to seek to stop such vile behavior. And certainly, no such word should proceed from the mouths, our mouths or our keyboards. And I had some things in here in my notes, and I thought, no, I'm not even going to say, mention these things because they're foul to even talk about them. But I'll let the hearer understand. we got a whole abbreviated language now with the Internet and texting. We all know what LOL is, laugh out loud. Well, there's a whole host of them that are there for filth, absolute filth. And they're developed so your mom and dad won't know what you're saying, but your friends will. But God knows. It ought never show up in anything you say or write, ever, if you belong to Christ. We owe this duty both to God and to our neighbors because we love them. We are obligated to honor and defend the name of God and His Word And we must likewise seek to prevent the ruin of our neighbors. The last category I want to mention today, it's a word, it's a phrase that's used in logic. I'm just going to use it here because it describes a category of speech that is common. And that's weasel words. Sounds funny, but it's not. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Vows, contracts, promises, other informal commitments are the main way that we enter into and maintain relationships. As church members, we've all taken vows. We've taken vows about what we will do and how we're committed to the church and how we're committed to God and committed to one another and committed with our participation, committed with our money, uh, committed in all kinds of ways. And God was listening when we took those vows. He followed every word. And He heard us say yes, yes, yes. And He holds us to that. And He heard our marriage vows. And He holds us to that. And And so God is listening to what we say even when we don't pay attention to it. Psalm 15 describes the character of a man who may dwell with the Lord and one of the key character traits is described in verse 4 of Psalm 15. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Did you say you would do that? Then do it. Oh, but I don't want to now. It's inconvenient and I'm tired and, and you know, uh, what's the big deal? The man who dwells with the Lord is the one who swears to his own heart hurt and doesn't change. In the book of James, 
we have a similar admonition. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. In other words, a man's character is only as good as his word. Just as God's words and God's actions are perfectly consistent with one another, he expects the same of us. And so when we make formal or even informal commitments, explicit or implied, we either keep or break them, even when it's difficult. Uh, And maybe especially when it's difficult, this reveals a great deal about who we are. When the heat's on, when when it's time to write the check or deliver the goods, when we're sometimes tempted to conveniently forget or try to weasel out of what we said. We try a little revisionist history. That's not exactly what I said. Or, I don't remember us talking about that. Or, you took it that way? Many politicians seem to be professional weasels who know how to use weasel words or spin as a constant cover. Weasel words, again, an informal term for words and phrases that while communicating a vague or ambiguous claim, create an impression that something specific and meaningful has been said. Weasel words manage to vaguely imply meaning far beyond the claim they actually make. And so the expression weasel word derives from the egg-eating habits of a weasel. An egg that a weasel has sucked will look intact to the casual observer while being completely empty. Thus, words or claims that turn out to be empty upon analysis are known as weasel words. A person says what they need to do in order to get what they want at the moment. You see, it depends on what the definition of is is, right? I'm reminded of the restaurant that had the sign that read, All You Can Eat for Six Dollars. Sounding like a great deal, the fellow ordered the plate, and when he was asked the waitress for a second plate, she informed him that it'd be an additional six dollars. The customer pointed to the sign and said, I thought it was all you could eat for six dollars. And she replied, Well, that's all you can eat for six dollars. <laughs> Most of us have been guilty of this at one time or another, guilty of such so called forgetfulness or weaselly activity as it pertains to our commitments. If I had known then what I know now, perhaps I wouldn't have made that commitment. But now self-conscious weasels are one thing, but we can all be tempted by the occasional weasels to be occasional weasels, excusing ourselves and pretending that we never really meant what we said or that we were perhaps misunderstood. Pride can certainly keep us from facing our own slipperiness. Nevertheless, the sooner we own our failures in this area, the sooner we can restore our good name. Don't want to be known as a weasel. Want to be known as a man of your word. That ought to be the one, that's that's one legacy you can leave your kids and your friends, all your family. You know what? That guy meant what he said. You could put it in the bank. You could count on it. You could count on him. If he said he'd do it, he'd do it. The greatest inheritance, then, you can leave. She always did what she said she would do, even when it wasn't easy, even when it hurt. The godly man or woman 
doesn't look for loopholes. They look to dwell with the Lord, for they are steadfast in all their ways. Psalm 15 ends with this promise, that is, those who do keep their word, who swear to their own hurt. He who does these things shall never be moved, as God establishes you, blesses you. Let's pray. Father, the corruption of our mouths is a reflection of the corruption of our hearts. We pray today that by your spirit and word we would come to see greater and greater sanctification, greater holiness in the way we speak. Expose our pride and humble us. Help us not to be contentious. May foul words and corrupt words never cross our lips. And may we always speak the truth in love. Who can understand his errors, the psalmist says. Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. God's word is life. When his word abides in us, and His Word governs us, then His Word also governs our words. That's what's in our heart. We hide God's Word in our heart, guess what comes out of our mouth? Whatever's in our heart. That's what it means to be filled with His Spirit. We use our words to sin, but we also use our words to confess and to give thanks We use our words to inflict pain on others, but we also use our words to comfort and encourage others. And so as we come to the table today to renew covenant with God, may part of that renewal be a fresh commitment to have our tongues used to glorify Him, to bless others in this coming week. In fact, as we eat and taste the bread and as we drink and taste the wine, as it stimulates our tongues We are dedicating our whole selves, but also our tongues uh, to the Lord. We're being renewed. And so today I want our focus to be, as we come to the table, Lord, renew my tongue. May my tongue glorify you in what I say and how I speak to you and others and what I don't say. May this be used to your glory and for your service. Heavenly Father, full of good, goodness and grace, you have been pleased to declare your holy will to us, your poor servants. Moreover, you have instructed us in the righteousness of your law. Grant also, we pray, that it may also be inscribed and impressed upon our hearts in such a way 
that in all our life we may endeavor to obey you alone. As we love you and our neighbors, especially, we pray that you would enable us to guard our mouths and control our tongues and use our words for blessing. You have truly given us abundant life, even in this veil of tears. Your mercies are new each morning. Great is your faithfulness. Teach us to rejoice in and for all things and to know how to be thankful, to learn that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Bless now this Lord's Day. Bless it with rest and delight. Bless our feast and teach us to savor your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His wonders among all the peoples. Amen. Amen.